This conversation was recorded July 27, 2019. Wade and Siggy thought they were going to discuss Once Upon a Time dot 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 in Hollywood, but discussed everything else instead. It's a sled. He's dead. The box contains his wife's head. Vader's his father. They're allergic to water. She's her sister and her daughter. You watched it wrong. Yo, this is Wade. <laughs> we didn't want to say the, the big intro anymore, huh? All right. What? You might do the big, hello, this is Wade. You're saying you do or you don't? I thought, or I I thought didn't... you said you didn't want to. This episode I said that? No, previously. Or in general? Want, in general. I might just want to kind of just fall into the conversation like, oh, someone just entered the room. Oh, hey, how's it going? We're just here talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Want to join us? Did I say that? I don't know. I don't remember saying that. <laughs> All right, was great. Hi, how you doing? This is Wade. And this is Siggy, and you're listening to You Watched It Wrong, the podcast where we pick a movie, one movie, and we discuss it at length, just like we always would have before we started doing it for you in podcast form. That's right. You're getting a little insight on just the private lives of the two of us, just quietly, intimately chatting about the filmic arts, the kinema, but now you get to hear it. Aren't you privileged? Thank you uh, for privileging no, us them. with oh. your attention. <laughs> I was there talking to the audience. You're right. Thank you. Yeah. I Thank was, you for privileging us. I was us. maintaining. I was maintaining. With your <laughs> so this episode. That sounded oddly sexual. <laughs> I'm maintaining. I'm maintaining. Please continue this episode. And this episode, we have selected to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> the new Quentin Tarantino, uh, as the credits did not proclaim, Quentin Tarantino's tenth film or when, ninth because he counts Kill Bill as one film. I forget. Who cares? He says ninth. Yeah, he apparently apparently Kill Bill is counted as one um, I, it, for him, I guess. Uh, I'm actually was very happy to not see the ninth film in the actual movie. Now, when the hateful eight had its trailer and it said the eighth film from Quentin Tarantino, you're like, okay, yeah. And then when I went to the movie, which I really enjoyed the hateful eight, I hateful eight. I really liked it. I saw it in 70 millimeter. I had a program. It was great. And then suddenly it goes the eighth film of Quentin. Tar and I went, Gah! yeah, <laughs> I like was like, you didn't need to do that. But why would I, why in the world would I start this off with a diss? Why? But because I was happy that there was a restraint there for the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino, it was just Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, anytime, um, anytime Tarantino can restrain himself and not be a little too precious about his own career and his sense of what it means, uh, all the better. Although he didn't restrain himself from an ellipsis in the title, which is <laughs> entirely unnecessary. Well, uh, and, I, and I would argue against that point of view. Oh, we're already debating. Let's debate I, I, the ellipsis I, in the title. Should we do it now? No, because we're not talking about that yet. First, we were going to talk about uh, what Quentin Tarantino means to us. Wade, 
you and I, we were young pups in high school. Oh, yeah. Uh, when Reservoir Dogs came out. I was just out of high school. I watched Reservoir Dogs on VHS in the summer between high school and college, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. And... And I, by the way, it's fitting that as you talk about Reservoir Dogs, there are dogs barking in the back. <laughs> yes, that is that is my dog. Um, I have jeopardized the integrity of the, our podcast sessions by getting a dog. Never was a problem before. It's fine now. Yes. She's unleashing her reservoir of barks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's topped over. And so uh, Reservoir Dogs came out. I thought, oh, this is a pretty cool movie. Like, it didn't, like, blow me away, but I, I liked it a lot. Um, it was generating a lot of discussion at the time. But then, 94, Wade, you and I are mm-hmm. both friends already at this point. Mm-hmm. We are in film school, and Pulp Fiction comes out, which, um, if you were a f- young film student in 94, Pulp Fiction coming out was, like, a tsunami hitting. It was, uh, it became the conversation to have was this movie. And what does it mean? And shouldn't every movie be like this now? That's kind of <laughs> what it felt like at the time. Exactly. And sadly, a lot of movies really tried to, failed miserably. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and that was a sad uh, time for film, like in a way. Yes. <laughs> yes. That, All the wrong- that sucked. It was, imagine the British invasion. All these bands trying to sound like the Beatles and all of them just being turds. All those <laughs> records being turds instead of being like classic after classic after classic album. Yeah. It's it's like if every band just got their hair cut and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And and honestly, to credit uh, Quentin Tarantino with he makes these huge this huge splash of a movie. Affects every movie that kind of comes after. Everybody wants to do it. Everyone wants to be it. And it becomes quickly a, the word Pulp Fiction knockoff is like a term used in a lot of reviews. Uh, Tarantino himself being such a out front kind of public, almost Stan Lee kind of figure, right? He, um, that, that he becomes part of self-parody. He be- well, he becomes parody, self-parody. He, people are kind of uh, almost uh, derision toward him because of his presence and his proclivity for acting and all the other stuff. And to the point where you kind of, some people were lumping him in with all the knockoffs. And then when you sit down and see one of his movies again, you're like, oh, wait, I forgot. These are amazing. <laughs> you know, it's like you're reminded just the reason why it was such a huge flash. It was that, that he is, he has this ability to draw you in like no other. Um, for me, uh, I had been tracking Reservoir Dogs as a movie in high school before it came out solely because I loved Tim Roth because I was obsessed with the movie Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Tom ah, Stopper. Yeah, right. And so anything with Tim Roth and Gary Oldman, I was seeking out. I remember seeing this weird orange poster with Harvey Keitel in it. Oh, wow. Hey, awesome. And Tim Roth. And so I started following it. I wanted to see it. I was talking all about it. And my brother, he was in college, but he'd heard me talk about it so much. So when it was playing there for him, he went to see it just to say that he saw it before me (laughs) and then to ruin it. But then it turns out he really liked it. He got his own stories out of that night and everything like that. 
Wait, he ruined it like he tried to tell you all about it before you got to see it? Yeah, that's what he wanted to do. Oh. He wanted to say, Tim Roth dies. <laughs> but that doesn't really spoil too much when you actually see the movie. <laughs> but I saw it for the first time with my friend Earl Corbin at IU Auditorium. I grew up not too far away from IU. That would be Indiana University. That would be Indiana University. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Footnote. They were playing it at their college, but they were playing it 16 millimeter. So the first time mm. I saw it was 16 millimeter. And to it me, might be the best way to see it. Oh, I, I again, I must disagree with you. Uh, well, not having seen it, I, <laughs> this is idle speculation. But I never had a cinematic experience like that. And my friend Earl and I were in a mostly empty, enormous auditorium. I'll, I was remember digging my fingers into the armrests out of pure tension and terror and laughing at the same time. <laughs> I never had had that happen to me before. And so um, I was sold from there on out. And then we had our, we saw Pulp Fiction at the Biograph uh, in Chicago. That was a packed house opening night. Man, the energy in that room I've never felt since. Yeah. How did we how did we manage to get in there? This is before you could we didn't like buy our tickets in advance or anything. We must have just did we show up early and stand in line? I don't know. How I did things work back then? I can't even remember. I think at the time there was Movie Phone brought to you by Party Radio B ninety six in the oh, world. Right. There was That's that. right. So yeah, we saw that I never felt the an audience so electric at, at the start of the movie. You know, and it just carried through. Like, um, I remember they cheered, the audience cheered at every name in the credits of Pulp Fiction, <laughs> except one, Bruce Willis. They booed. What? Bruce Willis's name came up and they booed. You remember that? No. And they, and they booed. And then, of course, within like 10 minutes of his story, they are turned around. I've only seen two times in my life have I seen an audience flip on an actor like that. Why, why were they booing? Why, well, he was ahead. kind of uh, a, at that point, his career was still big budget movies, but they were all kind of, you know, he kind of lost the faith of, of, of the film snobs, you know, as being a, a, a charismatic person, just just doing, you know, I forget. I want to say Striking Distance was one of the tones at the time, but I don't know. Like, I think Color of Night was coming out at the time and just all these um, movies that just weren't. You know, his career has gone up and down and up and down. But whenever Bruce Willis, the actor, shows up, like in Looper, it was so nice to see the like Bruce Willis show up to a movie again. And it was like, oh, I missed you. I missed you, buddy. <laughs> and it was just so great. Because you could tell he loved that movie and he was into it. And the movies where he showed, like, A Good Day to Die Hard, you know, he's, is, oh, man. <laughs> the only thing that gets you to that movie is just watching how little he cares about doing that movie. <laughs> Oh yeah, Bonfire the Okay, Look Who's Talking to So he did dude he had two Look Who's Talking, Bonfire the Vanities, Mortal Thoughts, Hudson Hawk, uh you being one of the very few defenders of that one, Billy Bathgate, Last Boy Scout, which I liked a lot. Yeah, Death Becomes Her, Striking Distance, Color of Night, North. Those were yeah, he had a pretty bad run up to Pulp Fiction. And I remember I remember distinctly reading an, an article about Death Becomes Her, which I also liked. Um, and Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, they were being asked about Bruce Willis. And in this article, I think it was in Premiere or Entertainment Weekly, I can't remember which, Meryl Streep was quoted as saying, you know, it kind of sounds like defending Nixon, but I really like him. <laughs> <laughs> and 
was like, oh, good, I'm glad. But he, she, she actually said it's like defending Nixon in a way. So he had some... At the time, he was kind of really on the down, either bad press or maybe his divorce with Demi Moore was happening at that time. And mm. maybe it was just kind of all going. His Seagram's sponsorship was, I think, probably oh, big. That's right. Bruno, the... Uh, Return of Bruno. <laughs> I love the... Hey, the two it's, albums I have of, of Bruce Willis, The Return of Bruno, I genuinely like. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> ah, We got off on a Bruce Willis track. I've only seen two times... In my life, seeing an audience flip on an actor during the movie. And that was Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction and Tom Arnold in True Lies. Oh, yeah, he was great in that movie. He was. He was fantastic. And, like, and, and he, he I, this is the only other time I've heard people boo in the theater at the credits. His name came up, people booed. And then when he's hiding behind that pole, when he's chasing the, the bad guys and they turn around and fire automatic weapons at him and he hides behind a pole that's thinner than he is. And he doesn't get shot, and he kind of kisses the pole. The place is on. They're just, they're totally with him. They're like, yeah! <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you fuckers. <laughs> Let's see you boo now. I seem to recall he has a pretty good uh, urinal scene in that movie, too. <laughs> I don't remember. But now we're on James Cameron movies. Let's go back. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Tarantino. Pulp Fiction. So Pulp Fiction comes out. Um, and, then, and you <laughs> talked about the wave of Tarantino imitators. You were talking about people making movies, but um, <laughs> we have uh, we have our own uh, experiences um, <laughs> with that too. Um, let's see. Well, your email address. Uh, this is back. Okay, you can pick all right. Your own. Now, I was hoping you wouldn't bring this up. <laughs> How could I not? Uh, as incoming freshmen, you could pick your own email addresses. So, personally, one of us, one of us had the nick uh, had the email address Quentin at Northwestern. Oh, this is back when it was uh, NWU dot edu. I thought it was a little uh, pretentious to use your own name. <laughs> It's probably like Quentin at Vogelback.nwu.edu well, or something like that. <laughs> some bullshit like that. Um, that was before we figured out how to clean up uh, domain names uh, in the computing internet world. <laughs> so you you did that. Uh, you you had some fashion choices, which were <laughs> Reservoir Dog inspired. True. Uh, However, I didn't Jerry curl my hair. Uh, that was me. <laughs> For for Halloween, I was uh, I was Jules Winfield. Um, not, my roommate Bob. Not in blackface. Let's point out. Not in blackface. You were no. just you. Just hair. Yeah. I grew the facial hair and I got a jerry curl. Um, I went to uh, a place in Evanston that looked like it would do jerry curls based <laughs> on the clientele. And I I went in with a, a picture. The 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 woman. Uh, who was styling my hair, hadn't seen the movie. She wasn't familiar with it, but I had a picture with me and I just showed her what I wanted. And she, <laughs> she was very cool about it. She like took a second and said, yeah, I can do that. But she also like every time somebody she knew entered the shop, she said, hold on. And then she would go over and whisper something to them. <laughs> and I had her. a feeling I knew what she was, what she was telling them. But she was she was a good sport about it, and I I got uh, my Jerry curl, I got my uh, bottle of relaxer, and uh, I kept that up until it grew out. That's right. <sighs> I used to have a pretty good head of hair. 
Still do, sir. I, I, uh, it's radio. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just say this. I enjoyed my hair while I had it. That's <laughs> what I'm. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, but that's not all, Wade. What else did we do? Mm-hmm. We did. We did something else. Oh boy, did we do something else with that hair of yours? Because you had it. Um, you had it done for Halloween. Oh, we used your hair too for this one. <laughs> that's true. Um. So we had a a, uh, a charity auction where we could auction off services that we would do for whoever bought us. We said for so much money, we will perform the entirety of Pulp Fiction live as a two-man show. And it was still in the theaters. But we were bought by a, a, a fella named Dan Rifkin. Uh, Siggy and I got the script. We had a few days to memorize it because Dan, Dan had said, we're doing it Saturday. At so this point, we'd already seen it multiple times in the theaters. Like, I, yeah. yeah, it exactly. didn't take much to... There wasn't much more to learn. Like, it felt like true. I had the movie committed mostly to memory at that point already. So we're going through the script and we're trying to find out. This is know, back when my memory was good. <laughs> <laughs> and to our disappointment, we found out that Pulp Fiction breaks down very easily into a two man show. Like there wasn't a lot of running around and confusion for us playing multiple roles. I think the only times. That happened was in the bar where the, my name's Paul. This is between y'all. Like that, that was funny because you had to leap over the bar to do both you and Bruce Willis's lines. And so, but we, it ended up very easily. You know, Siggy was Jules and Butch and um, Honey Bunny, and um, right. and I was Vincent. And uh, oh no, you were Uma Thurman. Oh, and was I? Oh, I, I, I think, had yeah. been. Yeah. Yeah, and I was uh, Esmerella Villalobos, or as you put it, Esmerella Cheetah Conchita Alonso, <laughs> best friend Antonio, which led to one of the few improvs in that whole thing, was when I said, "Yes, it means Smith," <laughs> <laughs> because we and that started us trying to crack each other up. We were trying to make each other break at that point, which you got me later in the show when you were doing uh, um, the Wolf. And uh, I, I, me as Jimmy, I started trying to imp- to break you up by making some dumb, dumb, you know, genital joke, and uh, it was not funny. And then you just said, "Ah, oh, you like to have jokes and giggle and laugh. Well, let me tell a joke." And then he go, Siggy goes into a whole new monologue from Reservoir Dogs, and that got <laughs> me. I had to go, "Yeah, okay, you got me. You get me. I won't do anything like that again." <laughs> <laughs> But that was a lot of fun. It broke up. The, the, I think the only role that was a problem was the gimp. And so we both played the gimp. We had a mask and we just put that mask on whenever the other person was doing something. <laughs> oh, what kind of mask was it? Was this one of was, Brian's wrestling like luchadora masks? <laughs> no, I think it was just a hockey mask. I think it was okay. just uh, we just put it on and we had to be something we could rip on and put on real quick, you know. Yeah. And then we got to that part. Oh, we had a little bit of fuzzy, funny business. Um, yeah, because we said, we said, we said, when we were doing it, we looked at each other and we said, so what do we do about this gimp scene? What, what, what do we do? I, and, I don't remember how we handled this. Oh, oh I remember precisely. Uh, I, and this was, this was, the, this was a moment we were already good friends, but my full bodied respect for you blossomed at this moment. <laughs> oh. Because oh. We, we were, I was, you know, tentative and shy and I go, how... 
you know, what are we going to do about this scene? What about this? What are we going to do about this scene? And and you said, look, people are going to come here to find out what we do with this scene. So let's just do the scene. You know, and I said, "Okay, so you raped me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was Marcellus Wallace. And uh, you just grabbed my legs. You were Zed. So, yeah, you just uh, fully clothed. Uh, I was a virgin at the time, so I don't know what you did. Maybe you did something. I don't know. But um, I, I was a virgin up to that point. Yeah, me too. So um, just just two virgins having fun on stage in front of a bunch of people that they lived with. And um, uh, we <laughs> so, yeah. And then I think we did the whole thing. Ex- we did the oral pleasure scene. Uh, the oral pleasure is the one uh, yeah. uh, uh, embellishment uh, I remember most about <laughs> it. Yeah, because we <laughs> we had lighting cues when, uh, on that one. Yeah, we had a lighting cue. Uh, Schmegs uh, was on the house lights, which was just like the light switch to the room. <laughs> it was just uh, but, the, the student lounge. Um, but uh, as uh, – uh, what's the character's name? With the pot belly? Fa- Fabiana. What's her name? Fabiana. Fabiana. Fab- Fabiana. Um, you like dove. Mm. No, I had to dive into you your dove. Lap. That's you right. dove between one. my legs, right. I was um, I was I was classically the receiver in that whole play. That's <laughs> right. The, For I some reason, I remember bottom. you diving into. I remember it the other way, but I but must it was be Butch just, and Fabiana. Yeah. So. I think I'm just so. Uh, I, I mean, I'm always <laughs> thinking about the audience's perspective. I'm really always seeing the show from how I think the audience is seeing it. That's just uh, the kind of performer I am. That's why I'm so engaging. I remember the embellishment was you when it, when it said. Uh, uh, you know, we give you our pleasure. We kiss it. Yeah, you first. You get up and like put your hands together in a diving mode, in a diving uh, 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 <laughs> position, and literally just swoop down like you're diving into a pool, and then cut the lights. <laughs> yeah, blackout as I'm in mid dive. as right. he's in mid dive. Yeah, that was good. That was a good bit of business. That got a good laugh. <laughs> got a good laugh. And surprisingly, we I think we did. The only scene we did not do was the scene immediately following that was the um, I think I broke a rib in the shower. That's the only scene we didn't do. We just forgot it. But everything oh. else we did. Uh, was it not in the script or did we just stop looking no, at the script know. after it was a just, while? Well, no, we, yeah, we didn't have it on stage. I think we had memorized it completely until the third act. And the third act was the only one we didn't have memorized, but we did it anyway. And it was I don't think we forgot anything. A tall order, uh, or a long, uh, a long way from our casino shootout, where <laughs> <laughs> that's a story in its own. We completely uh, that could be heard in a uh, an episode of the Siggy Lama Show. Really? Um, oh, that's right. I think the one with the way that replays the way Homer episode ten, something like that. I took a real DDT in that when I was supposed to take a fake DDT. Spoiler! Spoiler! Oh, sorry, I'll cut that out. Because no, we that's are, fine. No, they're we, not going to go listen to the Siggy Lama show. It's fine. <laughs> we are 33 minutes into a podcast about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we've been talking about Pulp Fiction this whole time. We haven't got past the ellipsis in the title. 
All so right. Let, so let's do that. It, suffice to say, we have had a long... Tarantino is as embedded in our cinematic um, education and cinematic life as um, Sinatra was in mu- music lovers of the 40s and 50s. I don't know why. It's pretty that, dang embedded. That's a pretty good analogy. Why not? Um, yeah. Yeah. And then he... He didn't stop making movies at Pulp Fiction, Wade. Oh, what's this you say? Did you know he continued to make movies for the next couple decades? How did I miss plus? this? Yeah. Uh, and so at I thought he did Wade's, near Savino and then it just ended. <laughs> uh, and at Wade's request, we, were, we are going to rank uh, Tarantino's films, or give our personal rankings up to... Like what they where they stood as of Wednesday of this week, uh, the day before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out in previews across the United States. Right now, let's uh, let's make a couple of ground rules. Um, at this point, according to us, if you count Death Proof and Kill Bill Volume One and Kill Bill Volume Two, he has technically released nine uh, features where he is the sole director. Now, according to Mr. Tarantino, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his ninth film. So I believe he is counting Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2 as one. I made my left list involved with them separate. How did you make them? Well, Wade, there are ground rules, and you establish ground rules so that we both follow them. That's the purpose. Right. So I... So it's so, implied I did the same thing as you. But okay, great. The reason I would not have pushed back or argued with your proposal in any way is because You Watched It Wrong is a podcast about how we experience the movies we watch. That's correct. And we experienced Kill Bill as two separate releases, two separate experiences. So, God damn it, that's what we're so going to talk about. That's, that's, how we're, that's how we're ranking them. We're not counting the movies we're not counting, um, probably because they aren't. They don't follow those rules. Are his first feature, the first um, um, black and white uh, stu- <clears throat> student film? I guess I don't. Actually, I'm not quite sure if he was a student film or not. But my best friend's birthday, not been not eligible for this list. For his segment of four rooms, not eligible, and his guest directing in Sin City, not eligible. So we're just dealing with the full fledged features. And his half of From Dust Till Dawn. Did he direct half of From Dust Till Dawn? Wow, come on. If you watch the first <laughs> If you watch the first half of that movie, it sure feels like he directed it. I maybe that's been debunked, but I I always believed that he directed the first half of that. It is a stellar first half. Although I would argue I've always argued that people always said the first half is brilliant, the second half sucks. Should never have done the vampire thing. And I don't like vampire movies, but you know what? I'm glad they did the vampire thing. I think it's necessary because otherwise, how would that first one have played out? It would have played out like every other movie. You take those A movie characters, you throw them in a B movie, see what happens. I love the vampire part, although it is really not as well done as the first part. (laughs) (laughs) No, it it is not. Uh, It is not. But we aren't ranking that, so we're not going to talk about it. Not going to talk about So, So... So why are we doing this? I guess this is just to let uh, the viewers know what kind of Tarantino fan they're dealing with before they we go on and talk for uh, 
who knows how long about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Is that the purpose of this? Or is it just because it's fun to listen to people? Or do we not well, care if any, it's any fun to listen to? Or is well, just, uh, some people would think Tarantino is his own genre in a way, although it's certainly, I would say not, but he is certainly yeah. an event and, is, and he is certainly taking his filmography as serious as the rest of us are. <laughs> uh, good Lord. Yeah, and then I know. So, uh, uh, so I, let's get into I'm it. I'm going to stop at 10 movies because I don't want to make a bad one. Even yeah. yeah, come on. That it's it's a little it, that it, yeah, I'm gonna I have gonna finally release my film criticism I've written that's uh, better than anything except for Pauline KL. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the record as saying that bullshit. Oh yeah, oh boy, douchebag. Okay, <laughs> make some great movies. Now surprisingly, now so weirdly, now I think I probably on our Marvel rankings I probably hemmed and hawed about how difficult it was and how I wanted to see things like this. And I wanted so much to be number ones and twos. Uh, this one, I was, this one really surprised. Like I'm surprised how much this, my, when I did my rankings, I was like, I could, it didn't, it felt right, but I was just, I go, really? That's that high. I, I'm really, this one really, this list really confused me. The list I made confused me. <laughs> and we'll, I'll let you know why in a minute. All right. Okay. So my number, my number nine, my number nine, the bottom of the the list is Kill Bill Volume One. Ah, yeah, that's slower than uh, on most people's list. Kill Bill Volume One yeah. is also pretty low on my list. Um, I had a third from the well, bottom. We'll oh, okay. You know, it's there's now. Let me just say, a lot. There's a all these movies I like. There's, they are, uh, and it's weird. Some will, some that are lower on the list, I actually like more than ones that are higher on the list. But there's different reasons for like, there's different reasons for it in terms of like, I like parts of this more than the whole of the other. And I had to really weigh that. Yeah, you know? sure. Like the whole of this movie is better. These have, like the, we were talking the highs and lows of albums. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, it's, um, is it a more consistent album or is there just more highs and lows? And so Kill Bill Volume 1 had the least of all of it. Um, it's got a, a I, I, I love watching, uh, Uma Thurman's great in it. Uh, my favorite scene is their most controversial scene, which isn't controversial to me at all. Which um, one? The scene where she, after she kills Vivica A. Fox and then her daughter comes in. Oh, yeah. Vivica A. Fox's daughter comes in and Uma Thurman basically tells her, you're going to come for me one day and I'm going to be waiting for you and then leaves. And so they, they kept writing things like, oh, and someone who, never, who didn't have, who, this is obviously written by someone who never have kids. If they had kids, they'd never write this. And I go, um, isn't this every Kung Fu movie ever it, made yeah, that, that's- is about revenge of parents? That's ridiculous. So, um, but on the whole, Kill Bill Volume 1 was the only Tarantino movie I've ever seen where about halfway through, and in fact, I think in the biggest battle they had in the middle, I thought to myself, why am I watching this? It doesn't add up to a whole lot. Yeah, right. I agree. I I, I, I felt um, like, oh, that movie had uh, everything I could have wanted action-wise. Yeah, um, totally. And then, like, nothing else. Like, why? Yeah. Um, it read to me like the movie that everyone thinks all his other movies are. You know what I mean? And then when you see the other movies, you're like, oh, that's like the... That's like 20 or 30th quality on the list, you know. 
of good quality things to this movie. So, yeah. So that's Kill Bill number one is my ninth. Yours? My ninth is uh, the one on this list I would just call a a bad movie, a failed movie, which is The Hateful Eight. Oh. Uh, I was brutally disappointed by this movie when I saw it in the theater. I uh, rewatched it this week because I'm like, can it really be as bad as I remembered? And I rewatched it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it really is as bad. It just doesn't work like it it doesn't work as a movie for me mm-hmm. at all. Um, there are elements of it I like. If I could pick them out of context, uh, they're like little scenes I like. But it, the tension just never ratchets up for me ever at any point in this movie. And that that is really it's a thing you put that because I think what we're going to be talking about in this podcast, that's going to be one of the biggest things we talk about is the ratcheting of tension. I could make an argument that I think his whole career is focused on either refining or finding new ways to basically just ratchet that tension up and how far can it go. And you're and I have the hateful eight a lot higher on that list than 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 you do. Um, but I, I will say it's, it's chamber theater origins are, are a little, um, pronounced <laughs> and I think the performances are amazing. I think some character moments are amazing, but you're right. So many plotting elements just don't line up and, and like, like the whole thing about the jelly beans falling, um, the, the logic they pull out of that. Or the logic that they don't pull out of that is like, what? What are you doing? Why? And the fact that, why does Channing why Samuel Tatum, L. Jackson doesn't use the information he has very early in the movie? Yes, exactly. Why? And, like, it doesn't. None of his behavior makes sense after that point. Yeah. Because we know he knows. Right. But he doesn't act like he knows. He doesn't inform anyone that might yeah. benefit him to inform that he knows Bob can't be actually taking care of this place. He is, right. a, you know, th- there's, there's something wrong here. Uh, uh, and uh, the hangman, Kurt Russell, who is cautious to the point of tedium uh, <laughs> when he's in the stagecoach and making people put the gun on the, put your, both your guns on the rack over there, hands way above your head, walk to me like molasses, make the scene take 20 minutes do this for another character. <laughs> uh, by the way, I recognize both of you. And we've had conversations before. Um, <laughs> everybody I meet in the, in the wilderness of Wyoming. Um, but then gets to a cabin where he says he knows people are waiting to kill him and working with his prisoner. All of his caution goes to the wind, uncuffs her, takes one gun from two people and is satisfied to dump them down the shitter. Like just none of the, no one's behavior makes any sense. Like there's, there's no internal logic. The gears of the, of the, of the story just don't mesh because no one's internal logic is logical. Like there's nothing I, I can't, that, uh, I, I, I can't forgive it. It's just, it doesn't work. Uh, that's true. I might have, I, I think I've only seen it that one time. I own it and I haven't watched it again. I've been wanting to watch it again. I just haven't had the 18 hours to do so. And um, <laughs> and uh, and I really wanted to watch Bruce Dern's character the second time. I wanted to see, I want to check out his reactions the whole time um, uh, before I watch. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I, there was a lot more that I appreciated about the movie 
that was able to trump those things. So much of it doesn't work, but in my mind right now, the good parts outweigh the the bad. Yeah. But I'm having trouble recalling what those good parts are. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some really cool stuff with like um, uh, power balances and imbalances in terms of what race relations and uh, where things were in American history at that point and how the things are saying like still you can find the way that they apply today. And like that's all cool. Just like you could cut an hour and a half out of that movie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and you, you can and, and tell uh, it in a more, co- more coherent way. I love that Walton Goggins had said his part was so much bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. Like all our stars just start falling off. And then it ends, and I and the end is to me is chilling. But there's so much to think about with that end. Um, it, it, but sadly, the one thing I do think about the most at the end is why the fuck did Channing Tatum wait so goddamn long to come up? And I and I know why. Yeah. I think it's because that was the rewrite he did after his script leaked. I'm I would wager that 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 whole part of it is the rewrite. Um, Did you read so, the leaked no, version? I, I've not read either of them. No, I wasn't going to read it because I was like, I want to see it. Well, you could read it now to find out. I could read it right. now and find out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you don't have to. I wouldn't wager money on this, Wade, because right. you could. I'm, you should find out ahead of time whether you're right or not. Gundam, if I had, if I was forced to wager, that's what I would do. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so so I I. I I hear you on that. But also right. just like after right after Inglorious Bastards, like another they're hiding under the floorboards surprise. Like, yeah, I didn't even re- think about that. Um, really? So, OK, so my number eight uh, is uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. <laughs> OK, which I, I rem- honestly, I remember as being better. Think Kid Bill Volume One. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> At this point, I don't remember why. Uh, other than a really awesome it final confrontation between the bride and bill. That was really cool. Um, but honestly, I've only seen both those movies once. And I loved the, uh, cruel tutelage of whatever the ancient Kung Fu masters name was. I don't remember. (laughs) Oh, Sonny Chiba's, uh, dual. Yeah. 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 I loved that segment. I Mm -hmm. loved the one inch punching out of the coffin. Um, that was in I two. The whole, yeah. Uh, um, what's Bill's brother's name? Michael, Michael Madsen. Madsen. I don't remember his name. His monologue, Michael Madsen's monologue to to Bill about how that woman deserves her revenge. We deserve to die for what we did to her. Yeah. And it just seems like he's like given up and being ordered to clean out the shitter at the strip club. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> gonna, that's pretty. I'm cool. gonna work shitter into. Uh, <laughs> Every movie description. <laughs> um, All right, well, and it just seems up? like he's okay. given up and then like, no, he's just given up on like trying to have a samurai sword. He's just <laughs> going to use a side of shotgun instead and be an asshole. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, the Superman monologue went on too long um, at the end, but I, I mostly I it, it had all the character had a character arc to it unlike volume one so i yeah. preferred it it felt much more like a uh narrative film mm-hmm. all right your number eight my number eight and work the word death proof ah so um so i've entered 
So death proof is in my uh, flawed tier. Um, <laughs> death proof is similar to the hateful eight in that there's a lot of tedium you have to get through to get to the good parts. Mm-hmm. But then there's like 20 minutes of great movie <laughs> in there. Yeah. Like um, until uh, what's her name? Was it um, the big guys roller girl from Boogie Nights? Heather Graham. She's not in it. Oh, who's the one who gets in the car with him? Uh, you know what? I was just trying to remember that the other day. Uh, I I can't remember who it is. It's someone who looks kind of like Heather Graham, right? In my mind, it's it's a it's someone called Dreama Walker, but I'm not who was in Don't Trust the Bee. But I don't know if that's right or not. I have no idea. Uh, I haven't seen this since uh, Grindhouse was in theater, so I don't really yeah. remember. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, at the point when she gets into the car with them, then you get like five minutes of great movie. <laughs> and then and they got to listen to some more bullshit conversations that go on too long. And the, uh, but then uh, and then when they're talking about what's why they need a white Dodge Challenger and doing ship's mast, that's mm. all boring. But then once they get on the Dodge Challenger and starts driving again, then you got like. 15 minutes, a great movie, or maybe that's 20 minutes. I'm just I'm just estimating at the top of my head. Right. Like there's some riveting uh, footage in there. Um, oh, completely. And then some bullshit you have to get through to to get there. So flawed, but uh, with uh, – and the old uh, Chicago Reader uh, review, they would say, has redeeming facet. <laughs> so it avoids my bottom spot for, for having some, uh, some really great highs. Uh, death proof, my number eight. Well, my number seven is death proof. Grindhouse Death Proof. So let's continue talking. Now, weirdly, I thought a lot about Death Proof during Once Upon a Time in in Hollywood. Not just because Kurt Russell was playing a stunt coordinator. And Zoe Bell is also playing. And Zoe Bell is also playing coordinator. Um, But, like, when Death Proof came out, I thought uh, I had, uh, obviously, I had a lot of issues with Death Proof as a movie. There is so much great in it. Um... But I, I also, at the time when I saw Grindhouse, I thought Rodriguez's movie was actually more fun and probably better yes. because it fit the mold of the Grindhouse. Death Proof didn't really fit the mold of the Grindhouse. It, it looked like it tried to, but it ended up becoming too high a quality. <laughs> but <laughs> it blew but it. The problem was it was too high a quality movie with this kind of nasty thing at its core. And um, uh, that nasty thing being what? Well, it's something that's going to show up in a lot of our uh, his movies. Is the you know the, the revenge fantasy? The this was Death Proof ended up being a girl power revenge fantasy, right? Um, but Tarantino style of girl power, not probably actual girl power. Um, and so, like, um, not that I would even know what that is, but I certainly recognize Tarantino power. <laughs> and so, um, to, but I was I was more thinking about just narrative structure so much when I was watching Death Proof, which, by the way, I was actually watching the theater. I was watching Death Proof in the theater that is shown at the beginning of the movie, the first shot of the thing. They showed the Alamo Draft House in Austin, oh, and I'm in that theater. Yeah. And we're like, Aah! um Also, though, it had uh, a joke in it that uh, if it was judging by the theater I was in, it was a joke made just for me. My brother said... He was the only one who laughed at it in his theater in Los Angeles. And so it was made for carnies. My favorite joke in the movie is at the very beginning when it says, so-and-so presents, Quentin Tardy presents 
and it sh- it's it shows the title card, and then it, it which actually says Thunderbolts, and then and it shows the title card for a split second, and then it's a hard cut and a black frame that just says Death Proof, written very small, <laughs> like it was a repackaged name. Yeah. That was just kind of harshly chopped in the in the in the grindhouse to make it. And oh, we laugh! I laughed so hard. I was the only one laughing. And uh, Todd said he, the same thing happened to him. So thank you, QT. That was we were very happy for that. Um, but um, I was living in Austin at the time, and I like you know I ate at Guero's a lot, and I see you know they're eating at Guero's, and you see stuff, man. I was I remember seeing as butterflies walking into the to Guero's to have their long ass conversation. Uh, and she sees the stuntman Max car kind of roll up there kind of menacingly. And then you look in the background, I saw like home slice pizza on South Congress. And then this store, this um, sewing machine repair shop store that I had dropped the sewing machine off at not a few weeks ago. And I remember seeing the movie going, Oh yeah, I need to see if my, that sewing machine is done. (laughs) (laughs) Took me right out of the movie. So it's been three weeks. How, man, that should have been done by now. Um, but um, that was my biggest problem with the movie. No, uh, <laughs> but but you know, I was into data information at the time, the efficiency of data delivery, and like, or inf- the efficiency of information delivery, and like, I was. Trying, I was <laughs> yes, it's yeah. the wrong movie for you then. <laughs> right, and I'm, and I'm sitting there going, you know, the whole up until. The the when Stuntman Mike murders the four girls and then it goes to a totally new set of four girls, all that part of the movie was just set up to say Stuntman Mike is bad. Something we learned when he put the woman in the cage in, in his car and drove her around and killed her by knocking her around. That was established in the same thing. So really, that whole thing could have been just that scene cut to... South Tennessee, you're, you know, uh, there. Um, oh, now, well, uh, no, I, yeah, I had to get him. Right. I mean, you know. But it would have missed my favorite scene. And my favorite scene is when they're at the Texas Chili Parlor, which, by the way, I passed the te- Texas Chili Parlor a lot in Austin, and it became, before I saw the movie, it became my, um, uh, my shorthand for having to take a very large runny dump. <laughs> I, I gotta go make a Texas chili parlor. <laughs> so I couldn't stop giggling when I'm watching the scene in the Texas chili parlor. Uh, sorry, owners of the Texas chili parlor. I've, I've never actually patron- been to your place. I'm sorry, sure listeners who had to listen to that <laughs> graphic description of your bowel movements, uh, but okay. Hey, if I have to deal with it, you guys should take some of the load, literally. Okay, so um, we're... Uh, can you believe I, I had to pantomime fucking that asshole? <laughs> nice pun. The um, my favorite scene, or the scene that I find the most impressive, rather, is the quote-unquote seduction scene where stuntman Mike approaches Butterfly with um, the winning uh, answer to the contest that she was forced into doing that she didn't want to do. And through the conversation, she by the end of the conversation, Butterfly actually wants to give this guy a lap dance, which she did not want to do. And the thing that I love about it is that we've already seen Stuntman Mike. He, you know what he's out to do. He's not out to have to 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 
find someone to pick up. He's there to find someone to murder. And so um, it that scene lays so amazingly bare how seduction is, on one level, very similar to... How, what's, how seduction is is just like predator and prey, only the prey is an equal and willing participant in that structure, where the prey is and, and the prey is not gender specific. The predator or the prey could be either one, but like both both parties in a seduction are, if you look from one perspective, not necessarily mine. I don't think I've ever successfully seduced anybody. <laughs> um, that it's a it's a dance where both both people are both participants are equal, have equal power, and are both willing. But so butterfly assumes that position that that role as a equal and willing participant by playing the role of prey. However, that's not the role the dynamic that Subman Mike is participating in. So that's what makes that one also scary, and two makes you really rethink this whole sort of seduction dance. I really that that scene really laid that whole dynamic bare for me, and I really thought it was awesome. And then they're all killed in a in a very gratuitous and and um, I think sickening way. And then we get a whole new set of people. Well, I. Is it sickening in a way that's different from any other slasher film? I guess not. It's sickening in the way that really want to watch this happen. And because it reverses four times, you never miss a moment. And um, each head, I get to see each head get destroyed uh, individually. The, The leg hitting the pavement is the thing I never will forget. And um, and then we get and unlike Psycho, where you go, well, psych, you know, I love how Psycho sw- bait and switch did. We follow Janet Lee, and then suddenly, boom, she's gone. Now, where I think this is different is because in Psycho, Janet Lee's death leads directly to the second half of the movie. His sister and lover come try to find her. What happened to Janet Lee? And that propels the rest of the story. And this, it's completely. Ill, completely non-connected people. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm given that we need to move along signal because we're... But I do... It, it, it all culminates in the absolute best thing in the movie, which is when they run him off the road and he hurts his hand and he starts... And Kurt Russell starts screaming, why, why? Yeah. Which starts is the whole blubbering. point of the movie is this this thing. So that is just... Awesome anyway. But anyway, anywho, very, however, I ended up thinking about Death Proof a lot during Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, along with my next selection. But what's your number seven? Uh, that was Rose McGowan who got into the... Oh, that's right. Rose McGowan, of course. Who's had her own experiences as uh, prey to Harvey Weinstein, as we all learned. Um, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, my, uh, my eight is Kill Bill Volume 1. My seven is Kill Bill Volume 2. As discussed, right. So I guess we don't need. But to now we're in the next. Uh, we're in the next tier. Next uh, tier now for me. These I got uh, these five movies. Ask me a different day, and I my five through eight might <laughs> change order. Although my volume Kill Bill Volume Two would still be above Volume One. So my number six is uh, Inglorious Bastards. 
Um, okay. I'm surprised it's that high, actually, on the list. Um, I um, Glorious Bastards uh, is Bravara filmmaking bar none. I will. It's what filmmaking? Bravara. Bravara. It's Bravara filmmaking, hands down. But in uh, that first 20 minutes is one of the best things I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and, and when Glorious Bastards came out, there was a lot. There was a couple of. Um, anti-reviews of it that kind of said, uh, Quentin Tarantino shows who says, hey, I'm a director, but uh, what I really want to do is write, as if that's a pejorative. And I said, okay, fuck you for calling writing a pejorative. But secondly, um, tell me anyone else who could have directed that scene. It's a great scene. That scene is one of the best directed scenes. In the, uh, in the French farmhouse with the, yeah. uh, the farmer trying to stall... Well, that's stall. He's not stalling for time. He's just trying to, to keep. Uh, <sighs> I don't remember the keep character's name. Keep people safe. Yeah. Ha, yeah. Uh, you Hans know, Landa. there's there's he's hiding Jews under his floorboards, and now, um, and Christoph Waltz uh, acts like he doesn't know, and then you find out he knew all along because at the, upon a rewatch. Yeah, he reads he someone's eye glancing downward for a second, and he knows instantly what that means. He knows where they are the second when he, second that door is opened. Yeah, and he he's being introduced to the daughters. Just, just having fun, and yeah. so contrast that to Samuel Jackson in Hateful Eight, and you're like, what is he doing? <laughs> right. I don't know what he's not just having fun. What's he doing? Yeah, but Hans Landa is in complete control. He's asking questions that he already knows the answer to. He's trying to have me ask for, he can take time to have the delicious milk. He can do that. Smoke um, his calabash. Right. And it's horrifying. Um, the, the, the bar room scene later on in the movie is just as, as tension filled, although we'd already seen, uh, had that type of scene at the beginning of the movie. So I was like, we're doing this again. <laughs> But on the whole, Inglorious Bastards to me um, feels kind of icky. And uh, I don't know if it's because I was influenced by a friend of mine who, um, uh, who before we, uh, before we, I'd seen it, before it even came out, he started railing about how it was um, not just a, like it was, it was an evil. And I, and um, and he he is Jewish, and uh, I had said I, I go I go he had read the screenplay but not seen the movie, and I said well you know maybe it's maybe it comes off different in the thing and he's like no 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 no, and and he ended up saying and I made him clarify it, he had said this is actually worse than the Holocaust this movie, and I went wait a second, are you saying um, that Tarantino writing a movie about the a fake movie about the Holocaust, where where people were Jews were killed, you're saying that that's worse than Jews actually being killed in real life in the Holocaust. And he said yes. And I went, uh, really? Uh, okay, that's crazy. And then he said something that I at least I understood where he was coming from. And he'd said because what we took, the lesson we took from World War II, well, the hold on to, the one thing we held on to was to not become the evil which had been beset upon us. We're, we, were, we were not to become that. And this movie is a revenge fantasy asking us to indulge in the evil that was set upon us. 
Uh, and I went, um, okay, I can see where you're coming from now. I don't think it's worse than people actually dying, I, but at least I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> well, I, well, I don't understand how making a movie means you've become the evil or that Eli Roth is like has become the evil that uh, or you know Sosh by setting the uh, Soshana by setting the theater on fire. I don't like I don't under, I don't I don't even understand the charge. Like what well, is? Well, you know they're Nazi hunters. Yeah, I'm not asking you to. I'm not asking you to. Yeah. Oh, the, just the fact that like they're serial. They're they're doing you know, serial. Hans Landa uh, is the Jew uh, hunter, and the bastards are the Nazi hunters. Yeah, and and it's that becoming the the evil, which you know, is to is to you need to rise above that. But then there's a whole thing of like, well, but they're trying to win a yourself. war against right. the Nazis. <laughs> exactly. So you know, there's a little thing I can't I can't say I I, I completely supposed agree. to rise above by just going home right. and not participating in World War II, <laughs> exactly. and that's how we defeat the Nazis. I don't. I, I don't even understand what fucking is being said here. I'm I sorry. I don't, no, no, no. I understand. I can't. I can't make his argument for him. That's just the sliver of that argument that I had with him. Um, and I realized I was defending a movie that I hadn't seen. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just let you have that because I haven't seen it. But um, I mean, is that someone I know? No. Okay. Um. So, uh, well, where was I? Um. But as I, things I, I love about it, I love I love Mike Myers in it. I love Michael Fassbender in it. I love the casting of the bastards. I didn't dig Brad Pitt at all, and um, I didn't. Um, I I was not. Uh, I didn't find the um, killing of Hitler cathartic in any way, um, and the presence of Eli Roth really threw me off. I. If only it had been Adam Sandler as originally which intended. I just, which I just heard about. I didn't know that until just that recently. Have, that would have been pretty special. Yeah, how, what would that have been like? What would that have been like? I bet there would yeah. a whole different movie. Eli Roth doesn't work. No. Uh, well, he bring, if you know who he is, he brings a, um, he brings a, a real level of cruelty. Like it, it's like encouraging the worst aspects of Quentin Tarantino to me. And like, um, in fact, the weird thing was th- that I was really shocked by was how moved I was. Oh God, by when he's when you first meet the bear Jew when he comes out of there, and he's about to kill the German soldier, and he, he pulls out and he says, "What's this? Uh, these medals here for? What'd you get this for?" And the soldier says, "For bravery." And the the weird nobility that he has yeah. is then contrasted to the sa- him. Being his head being beaten in by this guy, which to me kind of was making my friend's point for him, which was to say they're commenting here. That's why I was saying, see the movie first before you start saying this is because to me in that moment, I got the feeling of like, look, these guys are becoming like their enemy. They right. Right. They um, they're, they're the point of that scene is the bastards are not interested in holding the moral high ground. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's that's not what they're that's not why they're here. Right? And it doesn't feel good. So that's why the rest of the end of the movie kind of is um askew for me because that scene established what the bastards are doing isn't supposed to feel good. 
Yeah, it's personal. They've made it personal. Uh, right. Yeah. But then the movie itself could be argued as a revenge fantasy for the Holocaust. However, it's really more a tribute to the power of cinema in a way. <laughs> Yeah, you know, very explicitly. Yeah. Very explicitly. So uh, for me, I, I have a very complicated relationship with that movie. And I I think I've only seen it once, but I've watched the beginning of it several times. So I'll need to experience that again at some point. All right, you're number five. God, we uh, need to pick up the pace here. This might, uh, this, <laughs> this might be, we might split this into two episodes. All right, I was going <laughs> to give my next two uh, here because I I... Uh, debated with myself what order to put them. Um, my number five is Reservoir Dogs. Number four is Django Unchained. I think they're both great um, uh, in their way. I I have a great fondness for both of them. I after watching I've well I've, I've seen Reservoir Dogs ten times now. Like I don't know, it was the '90s. Of course, I watched it. I own the DVD. I think the Mr. Pink. Uh, I, th- I think I have the Mr. Pink box. Who knows? <laughs> it's in a tote, uh, Rubbermaid tote somewhere. <laughs> I haven't looked at it in years. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a great little pot boiler. I love it. Um, I think Django Unchained has more to say. Um, it does a, it ratchets up the tension even more. Uh, uh, when, uh, especially when, um, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, informs Leo DiCaprio of uh, everyone's identity and like the, the tensions in that scene afterwards is like hits the roof. It's great. Um, but there's, there's things that just felt um, the Mendinko scene, the, um, the hand hand combat for pay. Oh yeah. Scene. Like that was just so unpleasant. I, yeah. It's really unpleasant. Um, and there's other, uh, there's lots and Jamie Foxx, like a lot of it, he wasn't working for me in that movie for some reason. I can't remember why. I'm not a big fan of Jamie Foxx as an actor. I mean, I thought he's like baby driver is his career best. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was disappointed in his casting with, in, uh, Django and Shane during the movie. He didn't bother me, but he didn't, I mean, I thought he's good, but he didn't. You know, you come out of Pulp Fiction worshiping Jules Winifred. <laughs> you come out of there worshiping uh, Harvey Keitel, Mr. Oh, Mr. Pink, for crying, you know, and, yeah. and, and Harvey Keitel. Pretty everyone in Reservoir Dogs that came out worshiping. Uh, you know, all these people, well, Jackie Brown. Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Jackie Brown, you come out worshiping Pam Greer. But, um, and Robert Forster. And Robert Forster. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I don't know why did I slipped my mind there at the second. But, um, um, but I didn't come out worshiping Django. In that one, or, or he's uh, the weak uh, link. He's, he's the, the weak, weak link. link in his own movie. I mean, yeah. that's that's the problem. That's and what's keeping it out of the. And I don't think it would have been as. I won't think it would have been um, as good if his if his other casting choice had hadn't dropped out, which was Will Smith. As much as I love Will Smith, I, I don't know how that would have worked either. So I don't know. Eh, I don't know. Uh, but more on that later. My five is the Hateful Eight. We've already talked about that. My four is uh, Jackie Brown. Okay. Um, that's my number uh, three. That's your number three. All right. Well, we'll let's quickly talk about Jackie Brown. I, I wanted to put Jackie Brown higher uh, on this list. 
And I felt like it should be high. Well, no, I wanted to put it up higher, but it felt right here. And I, it's one I need to go back and watch again. Me too. I meant to watch it this week and I just didn't get yeah, to it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because there's a lot I like about it, but I do think a solid 40 minutes of walking could be taken out of that movie and it, <laughs> and it, and it be better for it. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think, but there's, there's a lot of beautiful stuff in it and a lot of stuff that kind of feels, okay, that just happened just because it could. And okay, now we're moving on. Like it, like, um, there was a lot of shrug in it for me, but, uh, overall it was a, you know, just for Pam Greer and Robert Forrester alone, that's a, um, a real, that's dynamite. Um, yeah, so, all the all the stuff like surrounding the main action is the best parts of the movie. Um, uh, but the 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 main like caper thing, the money switch in the mall, like when it actually happens, right? It's like, oh, that was shouldn't that have been a, a little bit exciting? Like it, it's, <laughs> it was such an anticlimax, and the flashback structure. Yeah, he was like, oh, we. Uh, it's like he's just doing the the non chronological just because he's Quentin Tarantino right. now. Like it didn't. It felt like it subtracted more than it added, and it. I completely it, agree. It, it, it took the tension out of the situation for me. I, yeah, so, you, I completely agree. And and that's what's keeping that, that. That's like that might be keep, be keeping it from being his best movie for me. I, I completely agree. My number three is Django Unchained. And I, I thought that should have been. I wanted to put that lower on the list because of Jamie Foxx's uh, shruggery, but um, um, not his shruggery, my shruggery for Jamie Foxx. I guess because the lead's not working. But there's so much potent in it, and I, I hate to say it, that but it mainly comes from um, Christoph Waltz, who, in a way, who I think really like suddenly, like like after I saw the movie, it took. I had to convince myself to to. And I remember he won the Oscar a second time, and I was like, "Really?" But then I, but then I had to remind myself, "No, this was a better performance." <laughs> I actually think his performance as that doctor is much is so compelling and so moving and so um, uh, exhilarating. Um, it's just hard. It, it's it's hard to conceive of it trumping Hans Landa in a way. Um, but uh, his whole, uh, the whole scene with him going to go get the marshal, get the mar- sheriff first, then the mar- marshal, and then the sheriff, or however that worked. Uh, and, and also, maybe I put it up so high also because I've been wanting Quentin Tarantino to make just a straight comedy. I would love to see him make just like a nonviolent, like nothing to be like, oh, this is his, his, dar- his uh, uh, violent, you know, with funny. I just want to see him make a comedy, like a, just a, yeah. just a comedy. And we, the closest thing we've gotten to that, I think, is the clan scene when they're about to go in, when Don Johnson and Jonah Hill and everybody are putting on their hoods to go and ride their horses in to, blow, to kill um, uh, Jamie Foxx and, 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 and Christoph Waltz. And they have the argument about how the holes aren't cut right on the thing, on the, on the eyes. And then when the guy goes, Hey, my wife stayed up all night cutting these holes. So I don't want to hear anything about, well, tell your wife to cut better holes. God damn it. You, <laughs> I mean, it was hilarious. And I was like, that's what I, I want a comedy out of him. I want to, I want just a straight comedy out of him. And so I was, that, that alone makes me really, <laughs> really just love this movie. Um, so much more, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's my number, um, 
three. My number three is Jackie Brown. Right. Uh, so I'm going to give my one and two. Um, right. My number two is Pulp Fiction. It's still just recast Quentin Tarantino and you have a perfect movie. <laughs> really? That's all I'm going to say. Why does everyone hate that? Oh, whatever. Oh, because he fucking sucks. Like every every word coming out of his mouth is just like excruciating. <laughs> you just can't. I mean, he's just not an actor. Put an actor in the scene. I, I don't. I don't mind him. Oh God, it, he doesn't work. Pine is nice. Like he can't even. <laughs> oh, I don't know. His timing is off. Is Quentin Tarantino? I I think you're just. I think you're great in that. I do. Ah man, no, sorry. And I was also very excited to find out that Jimmy's house it was is a couple of blocks from my last apartment. It's actually from where I am right now. It's literally just a couple of houses away, streets away. I was so thrilled to find that. Awesome. That means you don't live near any uh, safe places. So, uh, <laughs> the belly. That's my number two. So that makes your number one Inglorious Bastards? Inglorious Bastards. Oh, wow. I, I, and, and with the rocket, um, I saw it twice in the theater. I saw it a third time as soon as it was available on uh, whatever I saw it on at home. It's one of the quietest movies um, I've ever seen that like gets me on the edge of my seat mm. for for so much of it. I will I will even indulge Mr. Tarantino's gross self-indulgence by calling it in situ his masterpiece. I really what? think it is uh, when the, oh. when Brad Pitt, who I like, I really like in the movie um, when he carves the swastika into oh. uh, into the forehead at the end, he says, this might be my masterpiece. Oh, right. Like yeah. that's, you know, that's that's Quentin patting him on the back while he, patting, patting himself on the back while he's sitting in his typewriter. I never even thought about that. But oh, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I just think. uh this is an episode about Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. No, I, the, I no think, the next one will I think be. Everything, <laughs> I think everything in the movie works for me. I Really? I even, love this, it. even the Samuel L. Jackson voiceover introducing Stiglitz? Like, why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. I mean, and that's there just to me because it's fun. Hugo Stiglitz. No, right. when that when the, when that his it gets his own title card and it pops yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, totally. I fucking loved that. I mean, it's just I loved that. I mean, I mean, I, I I completely acknowledge it being good for just for being fun, but it really took me out of the movie. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, I no, I liked it. Uh, okay, um, him. <laughs> The weird uh, uh, infomercial about the flammability of film stock um, God, and the size that. of Sashana's film collection. Okay, that was <laughs> that seemed a little a little over elaborate, um, but no, just like I, I just think the way that like the the structure of that movie and the way it keeps building tension, and then the um, the surprise ending with the triple murder of. <laughs> Of of Adolf Hitler in the midst of the war, um, right? The one thing you think can't happen in the movie uh, happens right. three three times right in front of you, <laughs> like it's gratuitous upon gratuitous upon gratuitous. I I thought um, uh, Zemo, the sniper guy, like his whole Zemo. little 
<laughs> mini story yeah. was great, mm-hmm. you know, and like his like he's his his PTSD melancholy about his heroic achievement. Oh yeah, uh, I, I loved it. I loved That's that great. movie. I like love. I really do. So just because I have it way the fuck down and want it to be lower on my list doesn't mean I don't just I smile here and seeing how you just beaming. And so I just pretend uh, Eli Roth coming out of the tunnel. I just in my mind, I, I make it Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler. and I'm like, ah, oh. now that scene works for me. Eli Roth coming out of the tunnel doesn't scare me at all. No. Adam Sandler coming out of that tunnel with the baseball bat would scare me. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Wow, I God, I'd love to see that version. Oh, I'd love yeah. to see that version. Um, cool, that's awesome. Uh, and even ne- just a little like <laughs> little weird French waiter thing, like uh, <laughs> what vino, and then like the punches the oh. bullet through the guy's forehead, like just little moments like that. Yeah. Can you? You got two seconds to make it in the hallway. Can you do it? I've got to. Like I say that in my, to myself in my oh, head yeah? all the time. <laughs> Just all these little beats in it that are so great, and they just like they add up. It's like it's perfect. I don't know. I think it's like a no, just about a perfectly right. constructed movie. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, I'm it's done talking about a glorious it's bastard. Too that the bastards don't have, the bastards themselves have the smallest parts. Yeah, like, I, I really wanted to see what what is Sam Levine's character like, and what is uh, Paul Rust's character like, and Michael Bacall. What are their parent characters like? We don't get to know. They're just yeah. So, um, oh, and the scene in the basement, God, I love that scene. You, you what, the, the, the bar they're, hall? Yeah, they're where they're the playing the, 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 yeah, the yeah. guessing game. I hated the fact that I was taken out of that movie, uh, that scene because I was going, we, we saw a scene like this at the beginning of the movie and it was really good. And what's, you know, I was, I was almost angry that I had to go through it again. <laughs> but, it, but it's, but it's constructed right. differently. It so is, it's it like, really a, is. it really is. And then you get the I King know. Kong thing, King Kong. <laughs> delivered in a German <laughs> accent. Yeah. I have to oh. see it again. I really do. I, 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 I fucking yeah. love that movie. All right. Well, my, uh, my number two is, uh, Pulp Fiction. Tons of love for that movie, obviously, but we've talked about that enough. Uh, and my number one is Reservoir Dogs. I, I will never, yeah. I will never not, I don't think anything's going to knock that off the top because, um, it's it's it cemented my love of that of of his filmmaking and and it's just it's I I, I don't even know what to say about it it's it's just mwah. <laughs> it's a love affair that has not ended. It's your first love, yeah. There you yeah. go. Um, it's uh, it's it star has faded a little bit for me, but then I was never as crazy about it as I was about Pulp Fiction in the first place. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I love. I, I recognized. I think. I think at the time, I recognized Pulp Fiction was probably a stronger piece of cinema, but I still liked Reservoir Dogs more. I don't think I ever liked Pulp Fiction more than Reservoir Dogs. And I just found out this really interesting story about how um, the scene where that filmmakers have gone on, or, or not filmmakers, fil- well, filmmakers and critics and everybody has gone on on about about. Uh, when Tim Roth is telling Mr. Orange is telling the story of um, the joke, he's trying to rehearse the joke uh, that he the music the amusing anecdote about a drug dealer that he's got to memorize, right. and then the, you memorize the details, and the rest you make your own. And they take you through the stages of it, 
and then you go into him telling the joke to Joe Cabot and, and uh, Nice Guy Eddie, and then you go into the joke, right? Mm-hmm. And then you see the filming of the joke. Now, granted, that was actually part of the thing that's being made real for you. Like, it's become so vibrant in there. Now he's making this real for them. And then you see the shot with it cir- him circling and... Um, Tim Roth is the, the, in the in the joke is saying the words everything in my thing, blood in my veins are just saying get out of there just beat it just get out of there first it's like a shock of it wow like that right apparently that was not the way they were intending to shoot it and they didn't shoot it that way what we see in the movie is the rehearsal oh really that they had shot the scene and they just needed um, Tim Roth to kind of get the timing out right so they go say the monologue to kind of just so we know how long we need to do this. So they were timing it out and filming it as a filmed rehearsal. And they said, okay, now we'll do take one. And they do it with him just standing there. And we were supposed to hear the voiceover. But when they got in the edit room, it was like, this is better. <laughs> and that might have been Sally Minky. That might have been his editor, Sally Minky, who uh, the late Sally Minky. It could have been her or him. I don't know. But when they just get there, like, yeah, this is better. And that, that is the mark of a truly gifted filmmaker's is when they can see that as being, okay, now that's, that's not at all what we intended, but that's lightning in a bottle. Happy accidents. That's right. So, Happy little mistakes. Yeah. So there we go. So Kill Bill, Line 1, 2, Death Proof, Bastards, Hateful Eight, Jackie Brown, Django, Pulp, and Reservoir Dogs. And you, quick, just run a quick Does run anyone care? I actually <laughs> think this is boring. I, I only, I think, we, I'm all, you know. The MCU episode. I was the one who insisted on only doing top three, bottom three, because I think the middle of this, <laughs> the middle of these list is boring. I got bored trying to figure out the middle of my list. Uh, right. So going backwards, Hateful Eight, Death Proof, Kill Bill Volume One, Volume Two, Reservoir Dogs, Django Unchained, Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, and Glorious Bastards. Okay, thank you, sir. Well, we're going to take a break. In fact, we're going to take an episode break. This is going to be the uh, pre pre. Uh, what do they call it? The, the precursor to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will be our discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. See you Let's next talk time. about this movie. Uh, next episode. I'm getting a drink. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, Mr. Brown. Time to hit him with your big Madonna speech. Let me tell you what Like a Virgin is about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. No, I don't. It's about a what the fuck girl is he very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times. Time to unleash the Green Bay quick. Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, Green Bay. Tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. Cold. Yeah, that should show them. Like a virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. What's True Blue? Who the fuck hasn't heard of True Blue? Oh, wait, do I have any theories about True Blue? Uh, let's see, what else is on the album? Uh, at the end of Life at the Party, she's having the baby from Papa Don't Preach. No, Life at the Party's too obscure, they won't get that one. I have to explain, they'll ruin it. Um, oh, we just mentioned Papa Don't Preach. I could segue from that. Oh, wait, wait, what am I... My train of thought here. I was saying something. What was it? What was I talking about? I had a great spiel. I'll cue it up. What was it? Everybody's sharing their great pop culture yeah, observations. They gotta share mine. I've been practicing this one. Come on, what was it? What was that name? What the fuck was I talking about? So True Blue was about a guy, uh, sensitive girl that meets a nice guy, but like a virgin with a metaphor for big dicks. <laughs> How could I forget? Let me tell you what like a virgin is about. 
It's all about this Coos, who's a regular fucking shit. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? Oh, they're riffing now. I've got them hooked. She meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. You get it? She's getting a serious dick action. And she's feeling something she ain't felt since forever. Pain. Pain. Chew, Toby, chew. Now don't lose your train of thought. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt. You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. You're it hurts so cool. Just like it did. You're the so first cool. Time. You see, the pain You're is so reminding cool. the fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. <laughs> I stunned him into oh. silence. You're <laughs> all thinking fuck? how cool I am right now. You know, what the hell do you think you are? I you don't want to even react. I'm sick of fucking Come here. on, Joe, guys. I'll give it back to you when we oh. leave. I'll just, leave. I'll just look at me thinking that I'm Mr. Shit. I'd have to be Mr. Brown so close to Mr. Shit. Nobody can Toby? think of the color brown without thinking of shit. Toby? Toby Wong. These guys are never going to like me. Toby Wong. He's going to have to sit in the Toby getaway Chung, car. Fucking Charlie Chan. It's all right. Just play it cool, wait for the check to arrive, and then impress them with your method for calculating the tip. Yeah, that ought to